This is Cliff Dogs Podcasts, where Dr. Cliff Harvey chats with cool people doing interesting things in performance, business, health, and the creative arts. So, um, I guess our genesis story is that we've never actually spoken in person, Michelle. <laughs> um, but we've obviously thrown emails back and forward due to the, the work I was doing, the research I was doing on both long COVID and COVID vaccination adverse events. And you were one of a cohort of people who had experienced uh, an adverse event following the vaccine. And this is obviously a, you know, a, a, and a topic that's really um, polarizing at the moment. It's of a lot of interest to people. Uh, I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing a fairly well-known artist um, about this topic. And I had a lot of questions from my members about, you know, various aspects of what you've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about what, what happened after you had the, I mean, we'll just jump in, right? Yeah. After you had the vaccine, what what happened initially, um, you know, after the vaccine and then as it sort of moved into that medium term? Yeah, sure. Um, so I had my first Pfizer in September of last year. Um, and I guess it's also important to note that um, I was really excited to get the vaccine. Um, I'm a music photographer, so... It was important to me to get back to doing my job that I love and to travel and do all those things. So, um, and I am also a person, it's, I'm a bit of a science nerd. So I actually listen to like a lot of podcasts, even though I, um, I might not take in all of the technical information. I actually really enjoy listening to people who really know what they're talking about. And this is a topic that was really interesting to me because obviously it's really new. And I was listening to so many people talking to it about it and had thought that I got to a really good place of yeah I think this is the right thing to do like I you know I trust the science and I trust the people that are talking about this so um and I actually had talked a few people around into getting the vaccine themselves actually so um I just think it's important to note that um I was very on board with all of this so and, and wasn't really expecting anything negative to happen at all um and uh, people around me as well had had no adverse reaction so I was feeling pretty confident but um I guess probably three or four days in I didn't have any um I didn't really have any of the normal um I guess immune responses so I didn't have a fever I didn't have um chills or anything like that I was kind of coasting for a couple of days just had a sore arm and then on the fourth day um I was walking up to the post office feeling totally fine it was a beautiful day and all of a sudden I got really dizzy just overwhelmingly dizzy and had to just go home straight away and it it, all of a sudden I felt um kind of shortness of breath and chest pain which I was like oh potentially uh, it kind of feels like anxiety but I'm not really sure what's going on here um and I messaged a a doctor friend of mine and um I said I'm just feeling I'm just feeling very off and he's like a doctor friend of mine said look I think it's a it's a normal immune response you know you're just going through the your immune system's working nothing to worry about so I just was like cool he's obviously right and went on with my day and then that night I started getting very very sharp chest pain very very concerning uh it felt like my heart um and I contacted a, a friend of mine, a nurse that works in ER, because it was quite late at night, and she said, look, if you're concerned, just, you know, kind of go to ER. Like, um, 
I just said, it just doesn't feel like anything I've experienced before. And it was, you know, very, very frightening, <laughs> very frightening chest yeah, pain. Yeah. Um, and so my husband um, took me up to the hospital and, um, you know, they did all of the tests that they do, a, um, EKG and um, monitored my heart. And I think they took a blood um, test as well to check for my um, my levels to see if it was a heart attack or if it was um, myocarditis. And I think there was a little bit of conversation around myocarditis and pericarditis at that time, but it was very new. So um, anyway, the doctor said to me, you don't have any, you don't have those things. Um, you're fine, basically. Um, and so, and I remember the doctor that, that was like my discharge doctor took me out into a, a room and said, you know, we're seeing a lot of people. I think, uh, I think this is just anxiety and, um, you know, there's so much talk about vaccines at the moment and, you know, you definitely need to get your second vaccine. And I was like, oh, yeah, I wasn't really not, I wasn't not considering it. I just was, you know, concerned about how I was feeling and kind of off they, they sent me home and um, I progressively kept feeling those things, uh, especially at night. So I was getting a pounding heart heart rate, which I hadn't never experienced before, um, and fluctuations in heart rate as well. So I would just be – it often happened after eating. Um, all of a sudden I'd get these huge heart rate spikes um, and this concerning tightness in my chest. I was just really worried about this tightness in my chest. And then um, probably – Towards the third week when I was due for my second vaccination, it actually really started to calm down. I was kind of feeling like everything was simmering down. I'm like, okay, I must have just had a really strong response and I'm fine now and I should just go get my second vaccination I'll be fine. So that's what I did. I went and got my second vaccination and, um, again, within a couple of days, um, all of the things that I experienced the first time, um, it kind of quadrupled. <laughs> wow. And that was when everything got really chaotic and I felt like my life had turned upside down. Um, it was numerous hospital visits. The second hospital visit, I had a really lovely doctor who said, um, we're seeing a lot of people after Pfizer with these uh, symptoms and they're not checking out with, you know, they don't have myocarditis, they don't have pericarditis, but they're in distress and we don't know why. We just can't work out why. And we don't know if it's an inflammation of um, like the breastbone or something underneath, like inside the lungs, or there's something happening where, you know, these pe people like you are coming in and, you, you know, you're not, you know that you're not right, but we, we don't know what's going on and we can only refer you to your doctor and, you know, um, for them to, to look into it further. Um, and then I, you know, I went back a third time, um, to ER and that was very distressing. And, <laughs> um, I didn't actually get to see a doctor that time, but the, um, the nurse said to me, basically, I don't know what you expect us to do and you should seek therapy for your anxiety disorder. <laughs> she said, and I was like, right. I don't have an anxiety disorder. I've never, she's like, I suggest you go to your GP and she will know you and she will know your anxiety issues. I'm like, I've never been to my doctor for anxiety. I don't know 
what yeah, I was just I was in such distress at that time because these chest pains to me felt like I was having a heart attack and I just couldn't resolve it. Like it just wasn't um it you know, it was it was spiking and then I would be okay and then, you know, again it would spike. It was just all over the place. It was happening six or seven times a day I was getting these very acute responses it was after I ate after I had supplements after all of this stuff it was just like this huge response so I ended up going to my GP and and I had a a, like a, a list of this is what's happening to me I had a burning sensation across my chest as well like a real or felt like my lungs were on fire it was really bizarre wasn't sleeping at night crazy insomnia I'm such a good sleeper so not sleeping was really difficult for me um it was like yeah just it was just these crazy um episodes of just heightened response anxiety over the top like a panic attack but over and over and I just wasn't able to resolve it I guess um and then uh when I saw my GP she tried to prescribe me with anti-anxiety medication um And she said to me, actually, I know you really, I've seen you for 15 years. I've never seen you like this. You know, what's going on in your life? Like she was trying to say to me that I was, she could see that I was so anxious. And I'm like, something is physical is happening to me. I believe that it's been triggered by this vaccine. And she was just so dismissive. Um, And I just, I walked out the door and I said, I'm not medicating myself for something that I don't believe that I have. And Mm. Yeah, I never, I never went back to see her after that. Um, and so after that, I went, um, I actually started seeing a naturopath um, that my husband had been seeing. And that's when I turned a really big corner where she, but basically she just validated my concerns to say, hey, look, we're seeing a lot of people presenting like you. Um, and this is what we we want to we want to put these, these kind of um protocol into place and we think that it can help and at the same time i had um started doing so much of my own research and speaking to doctors in america and you know came across yourself and you were doing research and just reaching out to everyone basically um and there was a doctor in uh america who had made a link between long covid and vaccine injuries and he sent me through the protocol and he said look this is what we're doing with people like you um i suggest you start doing these things and i you know kind of believe they will help you and in conjunction with what i was doing with my naturopath which was very much diet supplement um and breathing exercises and things like that yeah i kind of started doing all of those things at once and started seeing an immediate improvement within a few weeks um and you know it's been a long process but i would say now i'm at 10 months out that i'm pretty much fully healed i'm back to what i would consider baseline day to day i just have a lingering exercise intolerance which is very frustrating for me as a very active person but even that um i've noticed so so originally i couldn't walk a flight of stairs I couldn't walk actually two or three stairs at once my heart rate would spike to this crazy like not what it should be wow. for walking two steps um yeah and I walk I live in a four-story townhouse as well so um it made life very challenging not, not ideal 
<laughs> not ideal. But now um, I have no issues with stairs. I'm walking um, six or seven Ks um, every other day. I've started body weight exercises. Um, I just have issues with um, like cardio. So if I try to push too far, I, um, I have issues, unfortunately. But it's so much better than it was, um, you know, in the first couple of months. So uh, I'm I'm pretty confident that that's going to fully resolve as well at some point. Well, it's, it's such an interesting, you know, perspective that you've had, and it's it's not unique, obviously. You know, we've been talking with dozens of people who have had very similar experiences. And I guess, like yourself, I'm... Well, I, I don't know where you're at now, but I'm I'm pro vaccination, and I'm obviously pro science science as yeah. a scientist. Um, but it's also I think extremely cavalier to to sort of think that because severe vaccine adverse events are quite rare, that they don't exist. And it seems to be that that's the proxy position of a lot of researchers and doctors is that if someone presents mm. with an event after the vaccine, that they just assume it's a coincidence or it's something else, you know, like in your case, mm. anxiety. Um, and obviously there are very yeah. strict criteria for, you know, diagnosing peri and myocarditis and some of the more common severe adverse events. Mm. Um, but I think it's also fair to say that, in my experience at least, I could be wrong, but in my experience it seems like having dealt with clients and patients for 25 years i don't think i've ever seen as many people suffer um even minor or moderate adverse events to the extent that they have with this vaccine Mm -hmm. Um, again not saying that i i disagree with people having the vaccine i'm fully in favor of it but i think we need to be aware that there are interesting effects that occur and they're basically the same as covid to some degree right uh, when we look at the the sequelae of events that occur after contracting COVID or that are associated with long COVID and severe COVID vaccine adverse events, we're really looking at immune dysfunction, the cytokine storm, you know, gross inflammation, multi-system inflammation that affects the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary system, the neurological system in particular, and it's it's all very similar. And so one of the reasons that I was interested in getting into some research around this uh, in conjunction with, with Anna, obviously, Anna Brooks from, Dr. Anna Brooks from Auckland University, was that I had a very strong hunch, you know, what, what in scientific terms we call a hypothesis, that there are nutrient interactions between uh, both, you know, COVID uh, and COVID vaccination adverse events and nutrients, nutrition. Mm. And interestingly, one of the things that we have seen or that I've seen in all of the people without exception that I've looked at who have either suffered long COVID or COVID vaccination adverse events is they were all undernourished. Mm -hmm. And so um, that that sort of brings me to a a question of how, how healthy did you feel you were before you were vaccinated? That's a great question. Um, I feel like... I was, ex- I felt personally, I was extremely healthy and fit. Like I'm, I've, I've actually got a degree in sports science. So, um, I have All always, right. always, so we can really nerd out. Yeah, <laughs> we can. Um, I, I have always exercised. I've always been very, um, conscious of my health and nutrition. Um, and my husband is even more so he's, um, I would say he's in that 
like biohacking um, world. He's like a full nerd. He does all of the things. I'm definitely not on that level. <laughs> I'm not doing the cold plunges every day and the saunas every second day. But um, but I would say that I was relatively healthy. Um, I probably think the thing that I probably just before this though, the thing that I was probably the least um, – because we, we had also just – we had just gone through our sixth lockdown in Melbourne and I was really yeah. health conscious and it was one of the things that I went really into um, just being really conscious of my health and fitness through all of the lockdowns, especially one, two, and three. By six, to be frank, I, like, I just was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and if there was any any – Point where I probably just was like throwing my hands up in the air and I'm going to eat all of the carbs and consume, you know, way more sugar than usual. Ever. It was definitely in that six lockdown. So b- between July, August and September um, before the vaccination. So I definitely would have right. slipped. Nothing to, you know, crazy, but if compared to where I was previously, um, I definitely yeah. had kind of thrown my hands in the air and just gone, I can't do this anymore. And um, had definitely let the diet stuff slip for sure, without a doubt. Um, and that, it that's was my way of coping, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that blew me away is looking at the the data from our cohort was that as a general rule, the people within the cohort weren't your typical like at-risk people, right? They mm. weren't old. They weren't suffering metabolic disorder. They weren't, um, you know, with overweight or obesity. Mm-hmm. So not overly adipose. All those common risk mm-hmm. factors that we would look at just weren't there. These were ostensibly young, fit, healthy people, you know, in the in the main. Mm-hmm. And even if you eyeball what the participants were, were eating, it looked pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them were eating mostly unrefined foods, you know, not all, but most of them were making a a good effort towards eating a really good diet. But what was really interesting is once we started getting a bit more, and I use the royal we, it was pretty much me doing this, (laughs) when we started um, getting quite granular on looking at the micronutrient status in particular, we started seeing that basically everyone was was undernourished, and in some cases quite drastically undernourished. Even for things that we would think should be quite ubiquitous in the diet, like, you know, B5. B- vitamin yeah. B5 is pantothenic acid. It comes from the root Greek word meaning everywhere because vitamin B5 is in heaps of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but even things like that, people were not taking in enough of. Yeah. And so this, you know, this really solidified that hypothesis and it fitted with a lot of the research and, and clinical work that I've been doing recently, which is really around the fact that we, we focus a lot on the idea that people eat too much. And that's that's true to some degree, obviously. We have this diabetes epidemic. But there's also a large proportion of people who are underfueling, and there's an even larger proportion of people who are undernourished. You know, in New Zealand, we have um, good government data which shows that at least half ki- half of all Kiwis are not taking in enough of at least one of the essential vitamins and minerals in their daily diets. Yeah, And obviously, given that the these nutrients act as immune modulators, immune regulators, you know, cofactors in the immune inflammatory cascade. It makes sense that there's going to be some some negative effects from it. And interestingly, since then, since we sort of started doing our research and I've got some um, case studies from your guys' cohort, which are just about to be published, 
uh, there's been a lot more research done in this, and they found overwhelmingly that a lot of these effects are associated very strongly with undernourishment overall. And so I think it's really interesting because we can be fit, you know, relatively young, healthy people, absent metabolic disorder, all those types of things, and still not even realize that we're probably not taking in all that we require. Um, So in in retrospect, I guess, knowing what you know now, do do you think that you were as healthy as you were or as you thought you were before getting vaccinated? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I think that's the thing with working with my naturopath and the dietitian that works with her is that, um, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. There was huge um, nutrient deficiencies in certain areas for sure. Um, And the other thing that they uncovered was for me um, uh, a likely underlying um, MCAS situation, so mast cell activation syndrome, something that – I had always been, so for example, I've always had an alcohol intolerance that I've never been able to explain. I just was, I just thought I was allergic to alcohol. Um, and I always had what I thought was a, a drug and, and medication sensitivity um, that could definitely bring on panic attacks. I just thought I was really sensitive to certain things. Um, and I guess through this process have just learned so much about um this, you know, potential underlying syndrome that I have and and how to keep that in control through um, not only diet, um, diet factors and, um, and supplementary uh, kind of factors, but also um, using antihistamines and something that just got kind of everything under control really quickly once I started um, very, very low dose over-the-counter antihistamines as well um and it's something it seems interesting i guess i guess um anecdotally because i am in the support groups um but it seems to be there's been a little bit of research around this um just from you know scientists that have had adverse reactions and then they've gone on to kind of do their own research within the group but it seems that mcas seems to be um an underlying contributor for around you know a 30 percent of people and again this is obviously not Hmm you know, uh, um, it's not an official study. This is all anecdotal. This is just getting uh, people that, you know, small groups of people that we've seen in um, these support groups. But that's something that seems to be underlying, which, again, um, is really interesting to me. Um, Yeah. And something that just with, like I said, low-dose antihistamines, a lot of people have resolved really quickly, which, um, again, Hmm. something that was not even – presented to me from my GP and that's something that I've found through just support groups and something that has worked for me um, and, and obviously through my naturopath as well. Um, her guidance with yeah. all of the other stuff um, has got me back to a point of baseline and it's just, it's, it's, it's just blows my mind that, you know, I could have been on the path that I was taking anti, anti-anxiety medication and, just been in such a, a bad place. Like it just actually blows my mind that that was the choice of course for my GP was to put me on medication and mask the issue that yeah. I was having at that time. It just, um, yeah, it blows my mind to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you bring up a couple of really good points and one is obviously that whole, you know, mast cell activation uh, or challenges around mast cell activation and that, that aspect of the sort of immune inflammatory cascade. That is something that's popping up quite a bit, and it's it's something that's um, 
interesting i think even before the pandemic people were starting to recognize just that little bit more mm. and there are some really interesting nutraceutical approaches that people are using for that uh, and some of those i think you're probably using anyway like uh resveratrol and quercetin and um yep. nad precursors like um nicotinamide riboside could yeah, have I'm, really I'm interesting just doing the because uh, again because i'm um, super sensitive but um <laughs> started me on the quercetin and um, there is a, a another one called Curse Cell, I think, which is a mast cell stabilizer. Um, again, I have to take things really, like I take quarter doses of things because I'm super sensitive to stuff. But yes, that that has been the um, the course of action. And the the other um, interesting part of what you say is this, you know, unfortunate dismissal of of people's signs and symptoms. You know, and, and we see this quite commonly where, you know, a really good example is IBS. You know, it's what we call a wastebasket diagnosis because once you eliminate all the, the you know, more serious things, I guess, that it could be, it's pretty much just IBS. And then, unfortunately, there's still a lingering idea within the medical community and some aspects of the medical community, I should say, because most doctors are, are fantastic. But there still seems to be this lingering idea that, oh, well, it's just all in your head then. Mm. Because it's not something that we can really pin down structurally or mechanistically in terms of the etiology. Um, but what that really just means is that it's so multifactorial. You know, we have for things like IBS, there's a big interplay between stress, uh, maybe trauma, and I think under eating as well. I've seen a lot of clients for whom their IBS is rectified just by getting in enough food, full stop, enough energy, right? Um, but it, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those interesting things where, and I've had it myself, you go to the doctor and you've got a, you've got a problem. There's something wrong. That's why you go to the doctor. <laughs> and they look at your bloods and they look at everything else and they say, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with you. Mm. It's like, hold on, but I'm here for a reason. <laughs> there is a yes. problem. There is something wrong, but you just haven't determined what it is yet. And I think we really need to approach these things, you know, gently and from the perspective, first and foremost, that the, the person is coming to us because there's a, a challenge. And we need to try and work with that person to meet the challenge together. And I think that's been one of the most frustrating things in working with this sort of cohort mm -hmm. is that usually um, any any of that personal experience that people are having just falls on deaf ears. Yeah, I found a real lack of curiosity that was very frustrating to me. Um, and, and even like my GP saying to me, like, I've seen you for 15 years. I've never seen you like this. <laughs> like. Okay, so that's probably suggesting to you that, you know, she's like, you're yeah. so level-headed. You're so, I've just, and I was hysterically crying because I'm like, I need help. Like, I'm just, I'm suffering. So I guess it was that lack of curiosity to understand what was going on and to write me, like, you know, just to write me off and say, this is anxiety and here's some anti-anxiety medication. And I remember saying to her, like, what are the side effects of the, um, anti-anxiety medication she printed it off and I'm looking at these side effects and it was like suicidal idealization like all of these like horrific and I'm just like I'm not risking yeah. this I'm sorry like I know my body I feel like I'm not a person that's at the doctor's every second week I I'm barely sick and the fact that I'm here and I'm telling you that there's something wrong like very wrong with me um yeah, it was just very, it was very, very frustrating. And I just felt that, um, you know, throughout the, you know, the, you know, like the third hospital visit that I had with the nurse and, 
Um, and what we saw, I think, again, anecdotally with all of these support groups is that they're all experiencing the same thing. Like doctors yeah. are saying this is anxiety. This And, you know, months down the track, people are getting, um, because of their own research or just through um, the data collection of people like yourself or um, other naturopaths that have been really curious that we end up helping ourselves. But, like, a lot of these people are falling into categories of dysautonomia and POTS and MCAS um, and, like you said, um, you know, nutrient deficiencies that can actually be fixed really, really easily through diet and supplementation. And that's what I've been saying yeah. to uh, – I see this in America a lot, to be honest, with, in the support groups is that a lot of – I think it's, like, ingrained in them that, um, you know, I just want a pill and I want to be fixed. And a lot of them haven't actually just done – the diet changes that I think a lot of throughout the world, this, again, this is just what I've noticed, but, you know, if you really stick to that strict anti-inflammatory diet and, and start looking at where you're nutrient deficient and, and supplementing for that, a lot of those people are getting well really quickly. And a lot of the yeah. people that are looking for, you know, that they, they just want to be medicated out of something are really struggling and, and, you know, 12 months, 14 months, 18 months later, still having the same issues because they're looking for a, a pill to fix them, you know, and and I just don't yeah. think that's for what we're seeing and you know, the complexity of issues and, and um, you know, every, there's so, there's a myriad of things that have happened from neurological to cardiovascular to um, um, obviously the heart issues with the, the myocarditis. There's just so many issues, but... Um, and it's so, so complex, but a lot of the people just haven't done that really baseline stuff, the really, the, you know, looking at the diet nutrition stuff, which I am constantly saying to people, at least start there, you know, yeah, just start, start, start at the um, very basics of stuff that you can control. Um, yeah, I think it's really important. I, I'm so glad you said that, Michelle, because I, I see so many patients nowadays who, you know, that they might have done some research online, they might have talked to some doctors, they might have, you know, talked to some naturopaths, whatever, and they've sort of compiled this big list of things that they should be taking or tests that they should have done. And they're really jumping down the rabbit hole without taking care of those foundations. And when we consider that, as you say, it is complex, you know, it is a very complex milieu of things that are happening with the immune modulation, immune regulation, but the body does a pretty good job overall of working that out if it has the cofactors it needs to do it. Mm -hmm. And when I see, you know, people coming to see me who might have had, let's say, a COVID vaccination adverse event, or maybe they've got long COVID, or maybe they've got a different condition, because I work a lot with sort of autoimmune conditions and cancers and things like that. And they're taking all these supplements, but they're still undernourished. Mm -hmm. It just goes to show that there's, there's not really anything that the body can do optimally if it doesn't have those foundational base essential nutrients. And so that's a really critical message I think that people need to be aware of is that, number one, a lot of us are undernourished without realizing it. Number two, that is the starting point always. You know, there's no point taking all these esoteric supplements if the foundations aren't taken care of. Yeah. I think that was a great thing about um, working with this um, particular naturopath and um, shout out to Steph at Merge Health because she's just been amazing. But she has a team of people, um, you know, and there's a dietitian with her as well. And, and like that was the first thing that they said, like without doing anything else, this is what you should be doing. And immediately, like within two weeks, 
the majority of my really concerning, um, you know, uh, like panic-like symptoms that I was happy, happy, they just settled down as soon as I started um, cutting out gluten and sugar and um, dairy and all of those things. It just it just kind of calmed everything down, and then I could really look into all right we've got all of these other symptoms let's look into how we can help those things through supplementation and um however else we're doing it but the other thing i wanted to note too and this came from um dr david petrino i think his name is um he's working with long COVID and vaccine injuries as well in um i think it's michigan or it's in america somewhere um but he was really big on um a program called stasis which is a breathing a breathwork um, program, which I right. found really, really helpful. Um, yep. And also meditation. So two things that I wouldn't have thought, again, I just, <laughs> you know, um, so many people have found things like that beneficial. And I've, again, I think because I was just healthy and I was like, <laughs> you know, I, I don't need things like that. But um, just I just found them so overwhelmingly beneficial was to do these daily breathwork work exercises um focusing on a nose breathing and um different breath work counting um 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes a night and daily meditation um one or two times a day just found it so beneficial just to calm everything down and i just feel like it's one part of again a bigger picture that's um i'm constantly saying to people if you haven't tried this throw this in the mix because I think it's something that people really overlook and like you said they're just they've got a list now of I've got to try this and I want to do the hyperbaric oxygen chamber and I've got to do all of these like super expensive things and um and not to say that that's not beneficial because I think it can be for a lot of people as well but um getting to those really simple things that our body is meant to be doing and, and respond to really well first and foremost um, I just think is just so beneficial. So if there's people out there that are still suffering, like it's just try those things that feel like are basic and maybe you just don't think they're going to work. I just found them incredibly beneficial and just found such um, improvement uh, really quickly once I started yeah. implementing all of those things like a daily routine, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's when we start talking about things like mindfulness and breath work and um you know meditation and things like that it's very easy for people just to d dismiss that as you know woo stuff mm. or maybe I, you know, it's having <laughs> I used to be one of those people i'm like oh whatever <laughs> and and i'm you know I, I guess i could say i'm a scientist given that i conduct scientific research but <laughs> I, i've also come from a, a long background of those things right I, I started meditating when i was about three years old started doing yoga when i was really young with my dad and did, did a lot of that stuff growing up so it was always it was always there for me um it wasn't until much later though that i started integrating that into my practice mm -hmm. and that was because there is actually an extraordinary amount of research out there backing those things and when we look at the bi-directional nature of you know stress sleep food, exercise, mindfulness, I mean, they're all interrelated and they all have positive effects for one another. And when we look even directly at the research, which shows associations between, for example, stress mitigation techniques like meditation and immune function, or the effects of that stress mitigation on sleep, which then affects, you know, immune function or which then uh, improves our food control, all these types of things. 
we can see that it's it's certainly not woo. It's um, you know it is foundational medicine nowadays. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, I think it's a lot harder for practitioners to approach things in that way, looking at the foundations for for several reasons. I mean, like you say, people do want a pill, you know, and it can lead practitioners to fall into green allopathy, which is that that term we use to describe, say, nutritionists or naturopaths who are just working as if they're doctors, mm. but instead of prescribing a drug, they're prescribing supplements. Mm. Um, and there's also the the temptation as practitioners to to almost want to overcomplicate things because then they feel uh, they they appear smarter, you know, than perhaps they are, and then they can sort of almost feel like a, a medical doctor. But at the end of the day, that's that's not what we do. You know, we pres- yeah. we provide nutrition, lifestyle, and those things are far more impactful in the long term than any, you know, pill can really be. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that was something that Steph said as well. Like she would constantly say, you know, I'm not a doctor and I can't prescribe or I can't um, diagnose you with certain things as well. So like knowing the boundaries of what um, – you know, the framework that you're working within, but doing the things that you know um, have worked with different patients and, and like that groundwork stuff is just, I just think when um, there's practitioners like yourself or like Steph that are working with so many vaccine injury people and they're doing similar things, which is, you know, through diet and nutrition and, and supplementation and, you know, it's they're seeing results. But obviously that's really I think that might be. That's annoying. It was just a new pair of sneakers that I ordered online. It was a what? New pair of sneakers that I ordered online. Hey, that that's that's great. So, I'm such a sneaker head. So anyway, I used to be. I I I used to um. For a while there, I was sponsored by Adidas back in the day. Oh, my God. And That's my dream is to be sponsored by Adidas. <laughs> well, it's I when I was, about um, it all the time. Our company, I, I was sort of, our, our company was sponsored by Adidas and I was sort of co-sponsored independently. I, I used to be a weightlifter back in the day. Oh, wow. And so, um, yeah, it was quite cool. I got, you know, lots of street shoes and stuff as well. But when I left Canada, this is going back now uh, 12 years or so ago. 11 or 12 years ago, I, I just didn't have enough room for all my sneakers and I didn't want to ship them back because it was going to be too expensive. So I, I ended up giving basically all of them to a homeless shelter. Oh, wow. So That's cool. There's all these homeless people wearing really sweet kicks. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I could, I, it started like, so this is, um, this is my office in the spare room and the, the, this cupboard is also full of my sneakers. So my husband's always like another pair. I'm like, yeah, I think so. Another pair. And the the crazy thing is I don't really wear shoes. I was known for a long time for being like this barefoot. Oh, dude. that's my husband. He never wears shoes. So I thought it was just a little bit <laughs> ostentatious and wasteful to have a whole bunch of cool sneakers cool when I didn't sneakers. even wear them. Yeah. <clears throat> However, I, I am gonna. I, I've decided that I'm gonna get a, a new pair of custom um, white on black Air Force Ones just to oh, sort of relive the old days. Sick. Well, I've got. I just bought these ones, which are kind of like. Can you see those? They're kind of like the. I, I can't see your video at the moment, but. Oh, no! I'm like. <laughs> they're like. <laughs> I can watch the, it back um, later, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hang on. Then I'll show. Wait. Can you see? Anyway, they're like the. um, The dunks. Like the, the original Nike dunks. Like the, the black and white ones that everyone has at the moment. But it's like, it's like a um, an upgraded version. I love them. Oh, cool. Anyway. They're high tops as well, so. 
<laughs> Big fan of high tops. I'm a basketballer, so like all my sneakers are high tops. You, you play? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, oh, to be honest, that's the most devastating <clears throat> part about right now with this exercise intolerance. I'm just trying to get back to play basketball because um, I've played my entire life and I I love it so much and um, I miss it. It's the one thing I really miss, so I'm, I'm very excited to get back eventually. But I used to play it at, oh, awesome. you know, state level when I was younger and just always oh, wow. continued it at, you know, um, I just play like B grade. It's like not serious enough to be like, you don't have to train, but it's like still a high enough level that it's competitive and it makes you feel like... Yeah. You're not a total hack. <laughs> yeah, I, I played all through high school. It was sort of my favorite sport. Um, and then after high school, a lot of the guys I played with were really good. They'd played sort of age group for New Zealand or some of them oh, had played awesome. uh, college in the States and all sorts. And so we, we would always get together every summer and just play pickup, um, oh, you know, down at the, the outdoor the hoops. And we've done done that forever. But now, um, you know, I've got a little baby and a few other commitments, so I haven't been born much at all lately. But... Yeah. Oh my god, I, it's it's the one sport that uh, <clears throat> it's actually how my husband and I we, we kind of bonded over um, basketball and, and rap music. So it's something that's very close to my heart that uh, I hope that I could get back on out of the court again soon. So that's what that's my goal. I'm working towards that. So it's a good it's good well, to it won't have be a goal. Far away. I don't think, I think so. Be... Um, yeah, I think it'll it'll resolve hopefully soon and i'm not sure if i had sent through any info on this but one of the things that um i always use as an exercise progression for people who have either had some sort of severe immunological event like this or maybe they've um, got chronic fatigue syndrome or one of the related sort of fatigue disorders is i get them back into back into exercise immediately because i think it's really important to have that um to to rebuild that work tolerance and that resilience Um, but Agreed. I always start with very low volume, relatively high load strength work. So ah, I'm talking maybe just like one set of less than six reps, but not to failure, always keeping sort of three reps in reserve. So if you're doing set six reps, it'd be at a weight you could do for at least nine. Um, but then slowly increasing the load over time. And then eventually once they've got a bit of sort of work tolerance, then you can start adding in more volume. And eventually then people can start doing more high intensity work and more of that sort of anaerobic and then into sort of cardio. Um, because really generally tonic, yeah, tonic strength work has the, basically the, the least, um, provides for the least, less stress on the central nervous system and on the immune mm-hmm. system. Yeah, I actually read something about that yesterday, which is really interesting to me, and I hadn't thought about going down that path. The the path that we had gone down um, with Steph and Sarah was um, building up my tolerance. We were doing kind of walking, uh, doing as much kind of walking as possible, So, um, and then, then building in more resistance to that, so like walking on the sand or like slightly walking up hills and stuff like that, which I found it's it's definitely built up my tolerance because originally I was really Definitely. struggling with walking around the block and now I'm, you know, I can do six or seven Ks and have absolutely no issues and up and down stairs all day and totally fine and um, and had just started doing just some kind of body weight kind of um, resistance training stuff, but maybe I need to throw in some get it, get me back on the well, weights. It's, it's the been a long time. Body weight stuff is great. The, to what, but but what, what we tend to find is that the bookend exercise, we call it bookend exercise, is 
sort of the most tonic for the nervous and immune system so it doesn't have um you know that that big sort of stressful impact what i mean by bookend is it's the stuff you've been doing it's the low grade residual work like getting in at least seven seven and a half thousand steps per day yeah and doing that well within your sort of work tolerance at the time but then also having the heavier load stuff but again very low volume and certainly not to failure and so body weight training can be great for that because if you're doing you know say 10 push-ups and you could do 15 or 20 that's that's great tonic work um once you can do sort of you know 20 or so reps then it's probably worth increasing the difficulty but you can do that easily with body weight by you know going to one arm push-ups or or whatever you know one-legged squats and things yeah just one arm push-ups one arm pull-ups one arm pull-ups uh that's good to know though i think yeah it feels like i'm definitely on the right path and um you know i'm not feeling the because for me it was like if if i was you know walked a flight of stairs it was like such an immediate um i don't even know to explain what i was feeling it's like um almost like my heart wasn't keeping up like it might uh, it's just was such a weird pain and I would just get this weird like sensation across my entire chest. Um, mm. Just this tightness of, and, and every fiber in my body would be saying to stop. That's the yeah. only way I can describe it is it's like, it's just saying no, no, no. And the point that I get to that point now is just, it's really rare. Whereas that was happening every day for me because I, live in a four-story house so every time I was trying to walk yeah. the stairs my body was screaming no so um it was very tricky for me to like get my head around why that was happening and don't think I fully understand that still to be honest um but I do know that I'm seeing a really big improvement and I do actually believe it will resolve um in time which is good <laughs> yeah so, I mean, it must have affected your work uh, quite a, a, a bit initially, right? Are, are you out on, on the road with artists or are you mainly sort of doing fixed sort of events? So, yeah, so with my job, I do um, a lot of studio-based work, so press shots and album covers and stuff like that for artists. But also I do, I shoot live music and I'm touring, like pre-COVID was touring a lot. I work with an artist um, named Rule and we're, you know, in 2019, we're on the road maybe like six or seven months of that year, and um, yeah. I guess and the that's only demanding. that is it is totally demanding. It's a it's like a people very people don't un- realize how demanding oh. it is. I, and when I you was, talk um, about like nutrient deficiency and stuff like that, it's like so difficult to maintain a tell me about it. normal lifestyle. <laughs> I, I um, road managed like a storm in the states for about six months. And we were, you know, just constantly touring and, you know, States is such a big country, obviously, you might be in the van or in sort of, van, you know, yeah. in your bus or in your van, in bus, depending yeah. on what you're at, um, like for 20 hours at a time kind of mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, in these little towns, often there's, you know, like if we ever saw a piece of fruit in a general store in a little town, we'd just grab it because you just <laughs> didn't have any fresh food. Yeah. And after that time touring with those guys... Um, ended up back in Vancouver where we lived and I just got the most sick that I've ever been I had the worst flu that I've ever had I was just laid up could not get out of bed for about a week just Mm. so run down so fatigued and I I just don't think people because people think it's all beer and skittles right you go to shows you play you get drunk you know it's all fun it's not the reality at all it's a hard grind it's a grind yeah I mean like luckily with rule um especially pre-2019 he was 
underage. So it was very, uh, in terms of like the crazy tour life, it definitely wasn't like that. We, we weren't really going out at all, but it's still really grueling. It's impossible to have any type of structure or routine. And specifically in America, it's really hard to get just decent food. Um, and where yeah. the bus, the bus would, we were in a, quite a big bus, but it would park in um, a usually in a, a massive car park that had four options and it was like, you know, Taco Bell, Wendy's and Junior's or something, you know, just like you had no decent food options. So we would often go um, just to um, Whole Foods or something and just try and get as much as, you know, we could get for the fridge and, and try and get some fruit and vegetables. But, yeah, it's like it's a very, very grueling life and I think 2019 same thing happened to us at the end of that we all got really sick that was the reason yeah. that in 2020 um during lockdown I, I wanted to get um healthy again because I definitely wasn't so all of 2020 was really focused on health and nutrition and exercise and getting really fit and I was doing keto for a while and just like got super um trying to get as ripped as possible during lockdown <laughs> um and uh but yeah so I did I was lucky. Well, I don't say lucky because it's the wrong word, but um, during a lot of this, um, I guess the acute injury, we were actually in lockdown um, and and coming out right. of lockdown and the industry did, really didn't get up and running until, you know, kind of early. Um, it's kind of only year. just coming back, right? It's only it's just popular. coming back. So like to, to be fair, I wasn't, um, my studio work came back, really quickly and I wasn't I'd yeah. never found that taxing um to be honest to be honest I would feel like almost like a complete like all of my symptoms would go away when I was shooting and I remember my naturopath saying do as much of that as possible because that's obviously a really great state like you enjoy that so much that you're it's like everything just goes away I'm in a flow state and it's just like bliss so I was trying to shoot as much as possible but um I had a tour booked for March um, with Rule in America and the UK and, and that was actually really great to focus on getting well enough to do that tour um, yeah. and it was something that – and my husband, like I have to thank him because he was just so just instrumental in keeping my mind positive because there was definitely moments where I just was like – I felt like I was going to be permanently disabled. I felt like if I can't walk a flight of stairs, how can I be running around an arena and up and down? You know, all venues have stairs. <laughs> like, how am I going to cope yeah. doing my job? And and he was just so, like, just militant in, like, keeping me positive and you are going to get okay. You need to believe you're going to get okay. And he would take me out and for walks and, and um swims because we're near close to the beach and just keeping me really active and, and on path and making sure my routine was, you know, meditating every day and taking my supplements and eating. At one point he was cooking for me every day because I just was, I was just not able to. And, you know, he just, <laughs> just really stepped up and was looking after me, which was amazing. But that March tour was like, I had to get better for that. And it was like a great little goal for me, I think. Um, to be focused on and something positive to attach to and even um, when during my meditation was just imagining myself well imagining myself do, doing my job and yeah um, I just found that yeah it's like um, a self-fulfilling prophecy I guess in that I, I got well enough I, I had a couple of a couple of hiccups during the tour um, but 
you know, I was able nothing that affected me doing my job. It was um, I had a, I had an MCAS issue with um, some Advil that I took over there, which I had a big reaction to. But um, and just some insomnia issues. I think it was like the actual travel was a big toll on my body. We were doing yeah. stupid. We were doing like a an LA to New York flight and then a New York to Dublin flight, like big. Um, just, just like, I mean, it, it took it on everybody, like everyone was having issues. And I think, you know, I wasn't at a hundred percent. So I was having, um, crazy, like insomnia issues and stuff. But other than that, I was able to do my job at a really high level and nothing that happened affected that. And I was very proud of myself to get to that point. Um, and then since coming back, um, I found coming like the jet lag, really got me like really threw me I was two weeks I felt like um I just didn't feel myself and I actually think I might have got COVID in London um our whole band got COVID they flew home and then they all tested positive and then I got sick and I was still in London um but I never tested positive which is weird but I had had a lot of the symptoms I don't I still don't know if I had COVID to this day but anyway had a lot of the you know Possibly. kind of symptoms yeah it's, I think it's I mean it's probably likely but um and then when I got home I just found it I've just never been um affected like that before and it took me a good two weeks just to feel normal I actually felt like upside down like I was saying to my husband it feels like all of the cells in my body are like the other way around <laughs> It was this really weird feeling. But then since then, which was like kind of April, really every month I'm making really solid progress to the point where this month is the first month where I'm like, I just haven't had any episodes. I haven't had any MCAS issues. I haven't had any um, insomnia or any of that stuff. Um, baseline, I just feel like I'm normal day to day. And um, the only kind of outlying thing for me is this exercise intolerance, which like I said, I'm working, working on. So, um, yeah, the improvement feels like it's, yeah, it's been really steady and, um, um, yeah, I'm happy to say that I'm pretty much back to normal, which is great. That is great. I mean, one thing that comes to mind from, from what you've said, and this meshes with, you know, there's just a bit of an epiphany I've had just Mm -hmm. now so many of the people that I've seen recover really well, whether it be from severe COVID effects, long COVID, COVID vaccination, adverse events, all the same sort of sequelae of things, they've had something that they're passionate and purposeful about. So they've had a real mm. driver to, to get well again. Mm. And obviously that drives, you know, adherence to the things they should be doing and all this kind of stuff. Whereas I think what we also have out there is this um, undercurrent of people who you know, don't have those things. Maybe they're working in jobs they don't dig. Maybe they don't have a job. You know, maybe they're yeah. unemployed. Maybe they're, um, you know, in that sort of poverty category. Maybe they're of a disenfranchised group, whatever it happens to be. And they're going to slip yeah. through the cracks because they don't have that extra imperative to really, you know, get on board and do the things they could. Or they don't have the financial ability to do it either because you know in complementary care we typically can only serve those who can pay for it that's a really Um, except of course in a research setting because obviously i don't charge the the cohort we're working with for research but yeah um there's a lot of people out there who are not going to get 
you know any of that support yeah um and, and that actually spins off into the the sort of last little block of things i wanted to talk about which is really about how this whole experience has affected your view of a few things you know how has it affected your view of government the medical profession the health system and society in general that's a great question um i've often said this like i don't think i'll ever be the same it feels like so i've had a couple of experiences that have really rocked my worldview in that i've always been just incredibly trusting of the government and <laughs> If, some, if somebody tells me to do something, I'm doing it. And um, I was definitely not suspicious or anything like that. Um, I've just had, I mean, there's just been a couple of things that have just completely left me disillusioned. I would say one has been the exemption process in Australia. And I, I believe that it's similar kind of around the world anyway, but um, that there's a, there's a, you know, there was a government mandate in place, which again, for, you know, arguments sake that you do you're trying to get the majority of the population vaccinated um for a really great reason but then there's people like myself um and so many others like me that don't have an adverse reaction that is severe enough to warrant an exemption so basically it's not an anaphylaxis and it's not myocarditis or pericarditis which is the two things that they'll allow an exemption for but yet this is something that has affected my life so drastically that I haven't felt normal for 10 months um and that I can't get an exemption and that my doctor says to me literally to my face that her license will be revoked if she writes any more exemptions and it doesn't make sense to me like that to me I'm just like it just baffles me so much that that Again, it just completely, um, my whole worldview was just spun, I think, on its head when I heard her say that. I'm just like, how yeah. is that fair that there's, what, why, I mean, if this was any other drug and I responded this badly to it, I would not have, you would be like, okay, you obviously don't have to have that thing. It's like, but then I, I could have been in a situation and thankfully the mandates were dropped here. But for me, it was like, I could have been in a situation where my career was taken away from me, I, I wasn't able to do my job because I couldn't take a, a vaccine. Like that to me is just insanity. And again, I know that there's reasons that they, you know, like a, from a public health perspective that we want to get as many people vaccinated. But I think these big brushstrokes that are government policy that don't take into consideration these um, situations or that there's been all of these people that, um, were originally very, um, you know, very reluctant and, and all of these people were asking for exemptions. So they were looking at anyone that was asking for an exemption with the same, you know, um, scepticism. Is it real or what exactly. did, did you go, you know, so, um, so that, that has really been disappointing. Obviously the, what happened with my GP has been overwhelmingly disappointing, um, public perception of people like myself um, when we've tried to speak out has been really disappointing. I mean, you know, I've done another podcast, which was, um, which was great and was like overwhelmingly positive, but um, you know, anytime you talk, try and talk about it for people that don't know me, you just get such blowback from people that just think that you're making stuff up. And it's just like, I don't have any reason. (laughs) 
I just want to, I don't, and I'm not even, I don't even want to say anything about, I'm not saying don't get the vaccine. I'm just saying, this is my experience. This is what happened to me. There's thousands of us. I'm trying to speak on behalf of a community that doesn't have a voice at the moment. This has got yeah. nothing to do with, because I, I just keep getting, oh, this is the statistics or this is why, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm not arguing against the vaccine. <laughs> it's not, exactly. it's just a stupid, like, why are you making it a for or against argument? I'm saying this happened to me. This is my experience. I can't get an exemption. What do you suggest that I do? You know, like, yeah, it's just that really binary thinking is, um, mind-blowing to me it's it's crazy i mean it it puts me in a very tricky position as a researcher to be conducting your research on covid vaccine adverse events because as soon as you start to do that people say oh you you must be an anti-vaxxer so well no if if you look at my record you'll see that i've been (laughs) consistently pro-vaccination for decades right as long as i've been an, an adult basically um and you know, in, in alignment with your experience, basically everyone that I've worked with who has had a COVID vaccination adverse event is pro-vaccination. Mm. That not just were, but remains pro-vaccination, yeah. but they also happen to suffer a, an adverse event, which happens. You know, and that's what people need to be pragmatic about is that there is no intervention, even if the risk to benefits for society is positive, mm or the you know, benefits risk, I should say, is positive, there is no intervention which doesn't have some risk. Mm-hmm. And because so many people have been vaccinated, of course there's going to be a large number who have had some type of vaccine adverse event. Exactly. Now, the and so I guess one of the things that spins out of that is because a lot of people are painted as you know anti-vax when in fact they're not, I've also seen a worrying sort of... I guess co-opting of some of the stories that you guys have been putting out there about your experiences by those died in the wool anti-vaxxers and unfortunately those died in the wool anti-vaxxers I'm going to go on a little bit of a ramble here they they often have a basis that is conspiratorial anti-semitic anti-zygonist you know all these things that are tied up with that alt-right sort of movement at the moment Do, do you have any comments on that have you seen that I've seen exactly what you're saying. I actually, um, when I did my other podcast, I actually was talking about the fact that the anti-vaxxers will happily weaponize our stories for their own benefit. Um, But then on the other side, we get disbelief. So what I've seen, again, anecdotally through the support groups is because the anti-vaxxers will believe people and hang on to our stories, there's a lot of people that are now going down those pathways because they're the only people that are believing us. And I just see yeah. that as such a huge issue is that you have all of these people like myself that were very on board, very trusting, willing to go, you know, do what was right for society. <clears throat> and those people are like, they're, they're now saying, I will never have another vaccination in my life. I will never trust the medical establishment. I will never get my children vaccinated because of their, their experience has been so negative. They've been so gaslit. They've had such a bad experience. And I see that as a huge issue. Like the blowback from that and, and you know, yes, there's a risk for, for every medication and let's say that we're 1%, like we keep being told we're the 1%. 1% of the world population that's just been vaccinated is a shitload of people. 
I don't want to yep. do the math, but it's a bloody lot of people. So I just keep <clears> being told this number and I'm like, stop saying that we're a 1%. We're actually individual humans that have actually suffered something. And um, I think it's that um, will, like willingness to just, you know, write us off as a statistic that people are now riling against and, and people are really angry and people are, you know, like I said, I'm seeing people 18 months in that haven't been able to get help and there's a lot of people that are suffering and I for doing the right thing. Like I just don't think that's okay. I don't think that's an appropriate way to treat human beings that went out and did what everyone said was the right thing and then they hit these brick walls and they're completely abandoned. So, yeah, yeah I, de- I definitely have seen that and it's it's incredibly worrying. You bring up a really good point because I've seen that in in some academics here that have questioned not necessarily even, you know, they're not COVID deniers, but what they've done is question some of the rationale for, say, lockdowns or the, the not even lockdowns, but the extremity of lockdown or some of the measures that have been used. Not because they are claiming they're ineffective, but because they are doing analysis around it mm-hmm. and modeling and saying that, well, maybe, you know, this extremity of lockdown, as an example, might result in a greater um, socioeconomic divide. It might increase the wealth gap. Um, it might end up actually causing more damage to the health system over time because we've got poorer, browner people suffering more, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So they're basically asking questions as academics should. And one of the most worrying things in the early days of the pandemic for me was that I, I believe very strongly based on firsthand accounts that I've heard and seen that some people in government were actively trying to suppress those academics um, in contravention of our law here because we have the Education Act, which allows edu- uh, academic freedom. Um, doesn't just allow it, it, it <laughs> stipulates it. And there was also... There were also well-known instances of people in government um, basically interfering with the free press and having stories sunk if they weren't in alignment with the common narrative. Now, it's not even that I, I disagree with the narrative, and it's not that I agree necessarily with my colleagues, some of whom have become very polarized because of this, and they've mm-hmm. become more extremist because mm-hmm. they've been pushed out, like yeah. you saw the same thing with the people who've yeah. experienced adverse events. I don't necessarily agree with them, but what I am vehemently against is their academic freedom being suppressed or the freedom of the press being manipulated um, in order to serve a particular end. I think we need discussion and we need to see all of the viewpoints because I think in that way we're not going to have the same potential for you know stories like yours and stories of like like we hear from other people being co-opted by religious extremists and white supremacists and all these, you know, elements of society that we wouldn't want to see rise. I completely agree with you. And I think that's, that's the most worrying thing is that once you start seeing those things, you start thinking like, am I a conspiracy theorist? I'm starting to see these things that I never (laughs) saw before. Like, am I going crazy? But you know, I mean, within these support groups, we've seen exactly the same things and there's, people like doctors that are saying that their license are going to be um, revoked if they do certain things or all of these things that if you had told me this a few years ago, I literally would have thought you were crazy. So, you know, we've definitely seen, um, seen that sort of thing firsthand. And I just think 
that sort of thing just flames all of the people that are extreme because they're they're pointing to these examples and it just it just drives people further and further <laughs> to that side and it's like we we need to have reasonable conversation and debate and ideas and all of these things need to be discussed um i just yeah. i it, it's actually it's very worrying to me um that those things are being suppressed the media aren't covering um stories that are happening there's a there's an amazing journalist um marianne damasi that's doing some great work in uncovering um some of the original trial data there's been a new preprint that just came out the other day um specifically looking at adverse reactions from the original pfizer data and it's i think it's seven very reputable scientists that have put this preprint together it's obviously not peer-reviewed yet but um and that the, the finding from that was that the adverse reactions was like one in 800. And like, I'm not seeing anyone kind of covering this. And, and, you know, when you're one of the 800, you're like, I would have loved to know this before because like, just to make an informed decision about what, you know, what is the best um, decision for me and my body and, and, and um, but also the community, but just, we just didn't have any of that information. We were just told safe and effective, for everyone and off you go and um, now you've got this situation where there's so many yeah. people that have been harmed. It's just, um, it's very sad. I think there was, I think it stems from fear, you know. that I, I saw it so much in the, the research community. We had a real, well, I, I've had a real hard time getting funding for our research, you know, for even getting people to talk about what what I would consider to be very basic things like, let's look at the the interaction between nutrition and long COVID. You know, let's look at the interactions between nutrition and COVID vaccination adverse events. As soon as you say that, people are very fearful because they don't want there to be any inkling of the suggestion that the vaccines are not overwhelmingly positive. Mm. No, like we've you know been discussing, we're not even saying that they're not net positive. What we're saying is there are important scientific hypotheses that need to be investigated so that we can do things better you know and i was going to ask you the the question to sort of finish up um from your experience what would you recommend to anyone who believes they've suffered a covid vaccination adverse event but i'm going to preempt you (laughs) i'm going to let you answer but i'm going to preempt you as well because i think that um you know one of the pragmatic things that i try and tell people is you know like i've said uh, probably a dozen times through this podcast, I'm pro-vaccination, but before your vaccination, make sure you're, for at least a couple of weeks and probably longer, eating well, getting enough sleep. Um, take a multi. You know, Make sure you're covering all your nutritional bases. Make sure you're doing the best you can so that your immune system can be properly prepared. And you should probably be doing that if you can for the long term anyway, because that's going to help to make you more resilient in the face of COVID, or as we're seeing now, the rise of RSV. It's a really bad flu season here. We've got monkeypox on the rise, (laughs) you know. It's not like these things are going to go away. But from a government perspective, um, I've thrown this out there on so many podcasts in the last couple of years. How can we properly address a health situation when the health system is embedded within an economic system that is not conducive to health? you know, that drives people to work too much for too little pay, that rewards, you know, work for work's sake, consumerism, waste, you know, all these types of things, that's not healthy. So how how can we ever seek to address it? And I think that's why most 
you know governmental agencies end up just putting their heads in the sand i'll get yeah, off my like soapbox now hard, no too hard basket for sure no you just you raise such a great point though about the research that you're doing because imagine if we knew that there was like a cohort of people that were at risk for these particular vaccines that could do something to prop up their immune systems or whatever they need to do so that it was safe <laughs> because I don't want to, I don't want to have the negative effects of COVID either. This is the thing I keep saying to people. I want to be protected from COVID as well. I've been told absolutely not. I, I cannot get any of the current vaccines that are um, on the market. I've been told that unequivocally by my GP because of the reaction that I had. So like, I still want to be protected. So it's just, just in this really weird position. It's like, I, I want to get my body to a point where, you know, hope, cause if this is around for another, if this is with us, you don't want to continually be affected, um, infected by something that's clearly having long-term multiple organ issues that you know, cognitive decline, all of these things that we don't want to see long-term. So again, I, I'm not, anti this i'm just i don't ever want to go through what i went through again and i don't want to see the people yeah. suffering that is suffering so if there's research like what you're doing to help people like myself and the cohort of people in these groups um i think all of the money should be thrown at that and that's not something you should be shying away from it's just knowledge it's just that's how science works you know oh you, you know you probably know me well enough even though we don't know each other at all to know that i don't really shy away from things i mean you know, my, my doctorate was in ketosis and ketogenesis, and um, I was one of the first people to really start working with that in Australasia back when everyone thought I was completely mad for doing it. <laughs> um, so I've certainly been on the outer at, at various times, but, um, you know, it, it, it can it can reach crazy extremes. I remember a number of us were sort of talking about a prudential approach to vaccination. And saying that, hey, you know, because of what we're seeing, we probably think, you know, at the very least, maybe take a multi mm -hmm. for, you know, two to four weeks before you get your vaccine. And there were um, academics out there saying, um, you can't say that. That's basically coming from a position of privilege. Um, people can't afford to take a multi. You know, you're also dismissing the, the, the fact that you can get all you need from diet. And we were just sitting there thinking, well, number one, the, the problem then is not taking a multi the problem is that we've got people who are poor let's address yeah, that yeah. on a societal level you know let's look at the wealth inequality problem let's you know when you talk about diet sure yes you can get all you need from diet but how many people are doing that yeah you know we have good very good data showing us that most people don't so let's try and do everything we can to at least get pragmatic pragmatic messaging out there to try and protect people now well the flip side of that unfortunately cliff is that if something happens to these people that are very underprivileged and, and can't afford a multivitamin they're going to be in a lot of trouble if they have a vaccine adverse reaction because i can't tell you how much money i've had to spend and thankfully i am in a privileged position that i can afford to do all of the things that i've needed to do um, to get myself right because there's so many people that just can't and there's so many exactly. people that need to do things like, you know, for, for their particular issue, um, you know, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is showing to be really beneficial, but they can't afford that or they can't afford to see a naturopath, you know, every month or um, that's a real travesty rather than telling people at the start, maybe just do these little things or maybe give out free multivitamins to 
everybody that needs them. I don't know. There's got to be a way. <laughs> we, we made that suggestion. It went down like a lead balloon. Oh, um, my God. We're solving but the yeah, I mean, problems here. But... In the yeah. very early days of the pandemic, I you know was on a number of podcasts sort of saying that hopefully, hopefully this will be a call to action. You know, seeing that even in the very early days, we could see that the wealth divide was growing. Um, the ultra rich were getting, you know, far wealthier and obviously the poorest sector of society were getting worse off. And so I sort of, um, you know, was, was trying to drum that message that maybe if we use this as a call to action, you know, to, to really try and level that playing field, then that might be the silver lining. Um, I don't see it happening, but I live in hope. <laughs> Feels like the opposite is happening almost. But yeah, no, um, you know, that yeah. would that would be wonderful. I don't, I, I'm feeling very disillusioned, I guess, after my experience, like I said. Um, we haven't even gone into the, the um, you know, adverse reaction reporting process, which I think is a whole other issue and the follow-up of that, which I think is a whole other issue. And, and again, where I just don't see science being done um and it's very alarming to me but um you know we could talk about this forever but um hopefully i think more conversations like this just are allowing people to see that um it's incredibly complex incredibly nuanced every single person that's had an adverse reaction has been different in certain ways there's not one size fits all to even treating people um but i think the the biggest Thing that I want to kind of spread is just empathy and just listening to people. Yeah. Um, people are not crazy. People know what's happening to them um, is very real. Uh, and if there could just be a little bit more empathy and, and rather than pointing fingers and calling people names, I think that would um, that'd be amazing to get to that point. <laughs> what a great way to finish off, Michelle, because obviously we reconnected after you listened to, I think, the podcast I did with Richie. Yes. And we were talking about that exactly is, you know, let's, let's come back to a place of kindness and discussion, you know, communicate properly about these things and we can all learn and grow and evolve as a result instead of taking these polar positions where we in some sense just really want to be right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's why I love that conversation so much. Um, and Richie's a really dear friend of mine. So um, and I had to reach out to say I loved it so much. So yes. We, and I'm we glad are... you did because your story is super important for people to hear because it's pragmatic and it's, um, well, that's the, the word to use. It's pragmatic. You know, it's not, you're not coming from extremist position. You're just talking about your experiences and those experiences are real. Exactly. And, and just wanting to give a voice to this community of people that um, they actually just feel very alone and that nobody is listening to them. So um, hopefully it'll just raise awareness that there's a lot of us out there. And, and if you, you know, come across anyone or, or hear a story, just believe them and have that validation. It will just go such uh, a long way in their lives at the moment. So, yeah. And um, pe people obviously can, if they've experienced a vaccine adverse event or they're going through long COVID or something around that whole process, they can always get in touch with um, with me and, and we can look at doing some, some case research as well. Yes, I would recommend getting in touch with you. And I just have to thank you. Um, I know we didn't do uh, kind of one-on-one -on -one work together, but just having that validation at the start that somebody was looking into this and that somebody believed that this was real. Um, it not only helped me, but it helped the whole community because at that point, nobody was believing us. So it really, it really did help just to know that you were there and you were taking, you were researching and you were taking in case studies. And um, so thank you so much for doing that. 
And, and really the thanks need to go to um, Dr. Anna Brooks because she, she kick-started that whole thing, um, you know, and actually formalized things a little bit more because previously I was just dealing with the, the odd isolated case here and there mm-hmm. um, clinically. So she, she really pulled that together and allowed us to start kicking off some hypotheses. So all the credit should go to um, Dr. Anna Brooks from Oklahoma. And is Anna the, Anna the one that found the microclot um, issue with long COVID? Is that the same um, I, doctor? I believe so, yeah. I'm not... not sure but she's been working on a lot of things um she's a uh i'm gonna get this wrong she's a cytologist at <laughs> Auckland university so she's uh looking at all the the, the blood results and things yes i, I believe yeah. she's the one that first found the um that there's mic like she actually proved that there's um, micro clotting specifically with long covid um which interesting uh, yeah is very um, pivotal to i think where the research will go next which is awesome I wouldn't be surprised if we see the same thing in um, Vex AEs as well then. I asked that. I said um, I was happy to send my blood, but then <laughs> they're not at that stage yet. They're looking at long COVID people. I was like, I think there's yeah. a lot of vaccine injured that would to send blood to people to study us. Like, we're happy we're here. But anyway, baby steps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Michelle. This has been awesome. Um, your experience is amazing for people to hear. And I'm, I'm just really stoked that you're back on track, um, getting back to 100% and doing your amazing work um, that you do in your art. <laughs> Thank you. I'm stoked to be, uh, to be pretty much back. So, yeah, it's a good feeling. Awesome. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cliff Dogs Podcasts. Subscribe to the cast at your favorite podcast channel. Check out the articles and member-only content at cliffharvey.com. And if you're interested in studying to become a registered health coach, accredited sports nutritionist, or registered clinical nutritionist, head over to the Holistic Performance Institute at holisticperformance.institute. Thank you.